The following is a message by Dr. Dirk Bergsma from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Last week, uh, Peter Jones said that he had never preached on the Minor Prophets, and it was a little scary that we were assigned the faculty to to preach from the Minor Prophets. Well, I have the opposite uh, attitude toward the Minor Prophets. When I was a pastor in my second church on the west side of Chicago, I preached from the Minor Prophets for in e- uh, continuous evening services for six months uh, until finally only my wife was left in the evening service. So, uh, no, that's not true. Be, be, believe it or not, people were, were eager. So I started uh, preaching from the Minor Prophets as a guest pastor. And more often than not, I'd get a request from some southern Wisconsin church Please bring another message from the Minor Prophets. So here we are, folks. Unfortunately, my files are in Tenley Park, so I had to prepare something from scratch here. (laughs) I couldn't go back to my files. Anyway, I would like you to turn your attention with me to the Word of God. The Word which you just sang is the Word, a living Word which reveals God's truth and grace. It's Zechariah chapter 3. Probably one of the more familiar passages, but one that is very inspiring. Hear the word of the Lord. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest. Remember, these are a series of visions. And Zechariah sees these repeated eight visions which uh, reveal God's intention to restore a believing community of faith after the exile in anticipation of the coming of the Savior 500 years later. And so he showed me, that is the angels bringing these visions before Zechariah, Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in dirty clothes, as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off those filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, Behold, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, 
then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among those standing here. That's the other priests. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associate priest seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua? There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of that land in a single day. So reads the word of God. Um, folks, it's, it's very popular, you know, to have court scenes now on television. My wife is sort of attracted by them. Uh, TV episodes that include court scenes, um, Judge Judy, <laughs> or American Greed, which always ends up in court because someone's finally guilty, and uh, others, of course. In fact, uh, the newest one is Judge Janine. Well, I've only seen it advertised. I haven't followed it. Well, the Bible has its shares of court scenes, doesn't, doesn't it? Job, probably the most familiar. Job accused before God, before the judge of heaven. Job is the guilty, at least in the devil's opinion. The defendant and the devil is the plaintiff. The plaintiff is the one who brings the complaint. Well, the Bible ends with a court scene, doesn't it? The great white throne of Revelation chapter 20, where the supreme judge will bring the final judgment in that ultimate court when the the, world, the, the people of the world of all ages, small and great, will appear before him for that ultimate sentence. And so Zechariah chapter 3 fits into the pattern, doesn't it? It's another court scene, doesn't it? And this court scene, and I know my preaching students are going to expect this, this court scene has this driven theme, this central focus, the post-exilic restoration of the temple service. Okay? Point number one, a terminated exile. The reinstallation of the temple service after the exile indicates the exile is over. That's number one. Secondly, a high priest installed. Of course, without a high priest, there's no temple service. Joshua, the high priest installed. And finally, a sinner vindicated the post-exilic restoration of the temple service. First, the terminated exile. Je uh, Jeremiah had prophesied that there would be an exile of 70 years. 70 years of discipline for Judah for being unfaithful to her God. And true to the prophetic word, first Egypt from the south and then the Chaldeans from the north invaded Judah. As a matter of fact, for a few years, Judah, or Judah was like a ping pong ball being batted forth from Egypt to uh, 
the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, and the Chaldeans finally were successful, and they subjected Judah uh, as, a, as a slave state under their empire from, uh, program. But not much had changed. Sure, the first deportation, they took the skilled builders, the people who could help build that marvelous city of Babylon, and they took them captive. We call that the first deportation. It happened shortly before 600 B.C. But the Chaldeans set up uh, Jehoiachin, who was, after all, a descendant of David. They couldn't call him a king because it was a vassal state now, but he was called the governor. But still, the Davidic line was continued. The temple service continued. Morning and evening sacrifices, the feast days, everything carried on pretty much the same way, except every April 15, when the income tax was collected, they had to send tribute money off to Babylon. Well, after about seven or eight years, Jehoiachin got sick of that, and he stopped paying tribute, and Nebuchadnezzar didn't like that at all. So he sent his army down in 597 now, And he took more captives, the second deportation, and set up Zedekiah as the puppet governor, who was still a descendant of David, so the lineage was still in a continuation of the Davidic monarchy. But Zedekiah made the same mistake after eight or nine years. And then Nebuchadnezzar and his army had had enough. So they sent the army down there one more time. And this time they simply destroyed the city of Jerusalem, devastated the temple. And Jerusalem was left behind like a landfill. And all the able-bodied that remained were taken captive as slaves to Babylon. And only the retarded and the weak and the sick and people of my age were left behind. They weren't worth much anymore. And that was the end of the temple service, 586. Well, you can read all about this, you know, in Second Chronicles 36, verses 15 to the end of the chapter. But a a group of remnants were allowed to return. Cyrus, you see, the Persians overtook the Chaldeans. You know, it's a complicated history. And Cyrus said, you slaves, you exiles, you can go back if you want. And only a small number, a relatively small number, uh, after three returning groups, Ezra says there were about 43,000. And they they were to reestablish the temple in Jerusalem. And they began with some enthusiasm, but then they got so interested in building their own houses and their own vineyards and their own herds that the temple site was simply a a hole in the ground. (laughs) They laid the footings, and then it laid there for years and years and years. And finally, around... Around 520 B.C., Haggai, it's only two chapters, but it's a great chapter, he inspires the people to rebuild that temple. And now we have this scene in Zechariah chapter 3 
where the temple, the Zerubbabel temple, is now restored. Nothing like the original Solomon temple that had been destroyed in 586. And the new temple is being dedicated, folks, in 516. So the exile, which most historians, in fact, I don't know a single exception, the exile, which they claim began with the first deportation, isn't really true at all. The exile began with the destruction of the temple and ended with the reconstruction of the temple. Because, you see, the worship of the Lord had to hold the central place in the life of the people. And once it didn't in 586, that's when the exile began. You see, physical dislocation from Judah to Babylon was simply a consequence of a much worse exile, an exile of the soul. The discontinuation of the worship of God in his temple. And so, you see, the exile really doesn't end until the new temple is built and the worship of God in the midst of his people is finally restored. So that, once again, this symbol of the central place that God held in the midst of the covenant community could be present. Which brings us to a high priest installed. Why focus on the high priest? Well, simply because without a high priest, there's no temple service. The high priest not only represented the Lord in the midst of the people, but he represented the people before the Lord. And so if there was no one worthy of serving high priest, then completed temple is useless. And this is all part of the devil's strategy. You know, if you read this history in Ezra, Ezra, the devil used a lot of strategies, didn't he? Opposition of the pagan tribes that infiltrated and finally threatened uh, to destroy this this, uh, restored band of exiles. Or the lethargy of the people in Judah themselves who didn't have the mind to build, as Haggai says. But finally the temple was constructed because there were a faithful few. But now the devil's strategy is to discuss to say that there is no one qualified to be high priest. And therefore, the temple, the restored temple, will simply be an empty shell, worthless. No one worthy to serve as high priest. Surely not this Joshua fellow. Look at him, dressed in dirty clothes, symbolic, of course, of his spiritual unworthiness, sinful, corrupt, Why, says the devil before the court of the Lord, this high priest will defile everything he touches, every sacrifice, every offering. What good is a temple if the high priest who represents the people as his breastplate did with the jewels, indicating that God saw his covenant people as his jewels, so it looks hopeless. That looks, it sounds very depressing, doesn't it? But then there's a new scene. You heard it. The angel of the Lord speaks on behalf of the Lord himself. 
Take off those filthy clothes. Dress him in clean white robes. Come on, bailiff. Cleanse this man. And place on him the headpiece that identifies the high priest, in front of which were the words, Holy unto the Lord. But now we have a problem, a theological problem. Theological problems always frustrate us, don't they? Which brings us to my third and last point, a sinner vindicated. How can sin be overlooked so easily? Did you hear this in in these verses Verse 3, the angel of the Lord said to those who were standing before him, take off the filthy clothes. A little later, I have taken away your sin. I will put rich garments upon you. How can sin be overlooked so easily? Can the unclean be purified? Uh, Can the unjust be justified on command? No penalty required. No debt paid. Where's the justice in it all? Well, it's there. It's there. I'll bet you heard it. It's in verse 8. The gospel, the God of grace offering himself as substitute for the unworthy. Listen, verse 8. O high priest Joshua and your associate priest seated before you, you are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring forth my servant, the branch. And then toward the end of that verse, and I will remove the sin of that land in a single day. I close with a poem which is both interpretive of this, a kind of a concluding interpretation of this passage and a testimony which I trust we all share. And it goes like this. I sinned. And straightway Satan flew before the throne of God and brought a railing accusation there. He said, this soul, this thing of clay and sod has sinned, and I demand the penalty. Hast thou not said, the soul that sinneth it must die? Is justice dead And so he did accuse me through and through. And every word the devil spoke was true. Then one rose up from God's right hand, before whose glory angels veiled their eyes. He spoke, each jot and tittle 
of the law must be fulfilled. The guilty one must die. But wait. Suppose I were to take his place and I would bear the penalty. I died that he might spotless be presented before the throne of God. And Satan fled away. Full well he knew that every word my Savior spoke was true. And now go in peace, for God goes with you. Amen. Copyright 2011, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.